Welcome to the Daniel Artest podcast. This is the live um, the live streaming edition, powered by Access Two. I just felt like it was important to hear on um, women's issues from this perspective in order to push the culture of research and education. I feel like it is important for me to use this platform I have to help other voices be heard. And I also feel like it's, it's not just educational for women, for, for men as well. So I got this uh, awesome panel of, of amazing women in here. And I'm gonna introduce, first I got um, Ashley Battle. She's a former WNBA player, and she is currently the um, basketball operations associates for the NBA. And I also have uh, Shamiqua Holtzclaw, former WNBA player, uh, mental health advocate, and as well has her own podcast called Ridiculous Upside, which you can listen to on any podcast platform. Tremendous, tremendous, tremendous upside. <laughs> tremendous upside, I'm sorry. Thank you for correcting me. Thank you for correcting Right, gotta get that right. I respect that. Nah. Thank, you, thank you for correcting me. You were thinking, you were thinking uh, the NBA G League. Yeah. Isn't yeah. it ridiculous upside? Yeah, yeah. yeah ridiculous. A tremendous upside. <laughs> <laughs> so go check out her podcast as well. And I'm going to give the floor to uh, Vivian, who's going to um, introduce. And then um, April's going to introduce. Then Shawnee's going to introduce. And then we're going to get started. How's it going, everybody? My name is Vivian Fryson, uh, former Gonzaga University athlete former uh, WNBA draftee, uh, played basketball professionally overseas, um, and then uh, coached Division One as well. Um, after that, decided to step away um, from the game. Uh, love it, but can't love it forever. Uh, and now I'm currently working uh, at Amazon in a research and develop development warehouse, uh, working with robotics and FCN automation. Um, and overall, I'm just passionate about the game of basketball, growing the, uh, growing the game for women. Um, creating access for women and uh, people of color, minorities, um, you know, and equity. April. Well, uh, yeah, yeah. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks, Vivian. Um, I'm really excited to have an opportunity to engage in this conversation. Super excited to be on this panel with these other amazing Black women. Thanks for pulling us together. Um, I'm April Sims. I serve as the Secretary Treasurer of the Washington State Labor Council, AFL-CIO. We're the umbrella organization and labor organization in Washington state. We represent about 600 locals and over a half a million union workers all across the state of Washington. I was elected into my position in December of 2018 um, as the first black woman elected as an executive officer of the Washington state AFL and uh, proudly serve as one of only three black uh, secretary treasurers in the nation um working for a state fed um so it's a real honor and a privilege uh, prior to being elected i served as the political and strategic campaign director um and i've you know been working in the labor movement for i don't know maybe about nearly 20 years now i guess if i if i'm doing the math and if i'm telling you all the truth um, but uh what my bio won't tell you is that you know my it was my mom's union job that got our family off of welfare and gave her economic dignity for the first time in her life. So um, I do this work because I know firsthand the difference that the union can make in the lives of workers, families, and communities. So thanks for the opportunity to, to be on your show. No, no problem. Thank you for coming on. Yeah. Uh, Shawnee? Good afternoon, brothers and sisters. So my name is Shawnee Wheeler-Jane. I am currently the political legislative director for Teamsters Joint Council. Teamsters is one of the most amalgamated unions out there. It's not a specific craft. We represent anywhere from educators to teachers, um, nurses, 
truck drivers is what we're known for. Most people think of a, a trucker, think of a teamster. Um, but we have everything from the womb to the tomb, we say. And it's a really great pleasure to be able to do this work. As April said, it's definitely not something that you do to get paid for. It's definitely a calling. Um, we have the opportunity to not only impact people um, at their paychecks, but their entire life, right? As a mother of five, and my house is completely full right now, um, of an 18-year-old to a newborn, um, I get the privilege to be able to work from home and still impact the lives of our essential workers. So this is a great calling, and I, I can't be doing anything better than this. So thank you for having me on. No problem, no problem. Thank you very much. So let's uh, let's get started. I just want to say, you know, um, as a huge women's basketball fan and an advocate for the game, um, it's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, Shamika, it's a pleasure to have you here, Ashley. Because of you, what's happening now with the women's game is possible. So um, it's it's really awesome to have you here and be a part, have you being a part of this discussion. I appreciate it, sis. Thank you so much. So a um, question I want to ask everybody, this is for everybody, how y'all have been uh, coping during these times of uh, COVID? <laughs> oh, boy, uh, I guess I'll start. Uh, I was just talking about this uh, to a friend. Uh, at first, it, it was really an adjustment for me because we just moved from California back to New York, where I'm from. And we got here probably two weeks before COVID hit. And we have, at that time, a four-month-old. So just trying to make those adjustments. Uh, moving around and a little bit of fear because, you know, it was just like, oh, my God, all the food was off the shelves. Um, and, you know, being in New York is this very dense population. So there's people everywhere. But, you know, I, I, I sort of got it together. Um, we started getting into our flow, but still the anxiety for me um, started kicking in. And I just had to, like, uh, I guess, buy into some uh, different types of habits because I'm the type of person that's always on the go. And now being able to create a schedule, you know, outside of my, my normal job, um, you know, making sure I wake up. First of all, Shawnee said she had five kids. So wake up before the house wakes up <laughs> to have that little bit of time. So, but, I, you know, we're doing well in, in, in managing. It's definitely an adjustment for the work that we do. There's definitely no set hours. Our members work around the clock. So that means we work around the clock. Um, sometimes I leave the house at five in the morning. I'm not getting home until 11 o'clock at night. Um, and having five children, that's, that's challenging. Um, yeah. And uh, being a mom, right, we take our kids everywhere. And all the work that I do, no matter if it's campaigning for the governor, if it's standing on a picket line, my boys, now I finally have a girl, but my boys have always been with me to come along and do that work. I wanted to show them uh, what keeps the lights on in this house ain't fucking free. And I needed them to see what it's like to stand up for others and to be um, outside of themselves. This has actually been um, as challenging as it is and as much as we're still constantly working around the clock, um, where everybody else has got this TikToks and they have all this free time, labor has been working even more so, hardcore. Mm -hmm. uh, but at the same time, while I'm able to work this much, I'm able to balance finally and actually have a schedule and integrate into the lives of what my kids like to do. Like I'm learning their interests for a change versus them just coming with me and my interests. Um, and it's actually been a godsend. I, I hate to say that in such a tragic time, but it's been really nice to reconnect with my family. Yeah, beautiful. So I was, um, I came home in Pittsburgh uh, March 10th. Unfortunately, my uncle passed away the 9th, non-COVID related. So it really brought me back home a little bit earlier. And 
you know, after we were, we were still blessed to have the service because things kind of got crazy right after that, where everything shut down. And, you know, I don't really like me. I'm also one that's on the go a lot. So it's really been um, nice to kind of be with my family and spend some time with my mom and my aunts. They're getting older. So it's, it's great to just kind of, you know, be still for a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, for me uh, personally, um, I'll just confess that probably for the first four weeks, um, you know, remember the first COVID case was in Seattle at the end of um, January and the first death at the end of February. So I think I had been maintaining my uh, consistent low level of anxiety and fear for probably about a solid four to six weeks. I mean, like, I bought all the things I, you know, I'm up at night thinking about what else I need. Um, I finally text a friend of mine um, who's a nurse and I'm like, you know, should I buy, <laughs> should I buy this respirator? I mean, no, I have no idea how to use it, but like, do I need this? And finally she was like, just stop, right? Like turn off the news, go get some exercise. You're as prepared as you're gonna be. But I realized that it had, you know, like this, a pandemic was bringing up like a lot of kind of um, unprocessed trauma around, you know, like when I was younger and didn't have enough and fear of survival. Um, and once I came to terms with that, um, I've been able to settle in a little bit, you know, like I just, I just started a garden. Um, so, you know, like all of you have mentioned, like I'm doing things that I had uh, never had the time to do before because there is the ability to balance more um, but I think the challenge that comes with that professionally is also uh, the pressure to always be available. Like, I'd love to take a vacation right now, but that feels like a luxury that um, it feels a little bit selfish. It also feels like if someone calls me at seven o'clock at night, I should be available. I should be working on the weekends because I'm just at home anyway. Um, you know, and, and, and the stakes are really high for workers right now. So the work that we do to represent folks who are, you know, the frontline workers who need proper protection and um, the workers who are impacted economically, um, these are high stakes, right? Um, and the moment requires real leadership. So like thinking about what that means for those of us who um, have the privilege to um, be in leadership positions right now. So mm -hmm. I talked longer than I meant to, I'm sorry. Oh, you're fine. Oh, no, you're fine. Yeah, you're fine. Great. <laughs> Um, I think for me, with COVID, uh, a lot of it's been business as usual. Um, I'm actually kind of grateful that I'm still working right now um, at my job because in the midst of all of this, it is giving me a sense of normalcy. Um, and I think that kind of helps with some of the anxiety. Um, but I think, um, you know, when you when you get to the weekend and you have those days off and there's not really much to go do, that's when you're really trying to find ways to fill your time. and. Um, I've really been able to cope just by doing things for others, I've found, um, you know, whether it be, uh, you know, friends and I'm thinking of them. So, you know, they probably need a care package. Let me put something together and take it mm -hmm. to them. Um, I've also actually um, called out of work and let my bosses know this. So if they're watching, they already know. Um, but I've called out of work a couple of times to go and uh, volunteer. Um, I, there's a, a program that's really near and dear to my heart called the Emergency Feeding Program. Um, and they get donations from uh, Amazon, Prime Now, and Whole Foods. Um, 
and they take those donations and they give them to people in need, um, you know, no, no ID required, anything and all area codes. So it's really great to be able to go down there and put together bags for families and donate pounds and pounds and pounds of food to families and organizations and churches um, that really service the community. And I've found that that's been something that's really helped me to cope um, because it takes me outside of myself. And while you're thinking about others and you're being grateful for what you can do for others, it really makes it hard for you to think about the the selfish part of you that's getting a little anxious because things aren't exactly how you want them to be. I found. <laughs> yeah, my my experience with it is is, is rough because um, I live in Charleston, South Carolina, and uh, I got my twins live in Indianapolis, and I got another son in Nashville, Tennessee. So not being able to see them has been kind of rough. Um, not being able to go to New York to see like my family has also been kind of rough as well. Um, I had an aunt that passed away from it recently, so it, it, it's been it's been kind of kind of tough. But I just you know I just kind of just locked in, locked myself in, locked my family in and stuff. And uh, if I do go outside, we come back in the house like disinfect everything. And then I got a trash, I got a um, um, dirty clothes bag right here. As soon as we just come in, everything just comes right, right <laughs> and then we go right into the shower and stuff like that. So, and that also, um, that also is practice to stay indoors because we, you literally go outside to throw the trash out. You got to come back in the house and go take a shower and stuff. So I, I tried to, you know, just um, edu- I educated myself on it and I, I, I um, exercise extreme, extreme caution. Yeah, Daniel, I'm sorry to hear about your aunt. Yeah. Are, yeah no yeah it, it it was definitely tough because um they had to this is why i always tell people you know i know i get it a lot of people in new york especially they they're outside la is outside and i'll be telling people like hey listen you don't want to be able to id your family member's body over a phone that's that's not even the most that's impersonal you know what i'm saying so mm-hmm. well, just exercise caution stay away you may have the, the um you may have the symptoms but you don't know it and then pass on to somebody else so that's why I always tell people, you know, just to stay, you know, indoors and stuff like that. So yeah, yeah, we need a we need a loudspeaker that needs to go uh, go out to a bunch of people. I was driving through uh, Manhattan the other day, and they're out. They're just out at the bar, like in Manhattan, just hanging out. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, are, are are you serious? But then you don't see any. I didn't see any police, and of course, I came back through to Harlem. So I'll pick me up some food, and of course you see the police. So I'm like, like, come on, New York. Like I've been, I've been away for some years, but I'm like, like, come on, I don't want to come back to this BS, man. Like really, they're out like in droves, just like kicking it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. different, and that's why I like being down here in the south because nobody's outside. And if I if I wanted to um <laughs> yeah. if I wanted to to go for a walk or something you know nobody's in the way really so because it's real it's real dead over here so yeah mm-hmm. all right well let's move on um to um to all y'all actually this question is for all y'all for a little second um as female leaders what are some barriers y- y'all have faced throughout your careers have any of you ever dealt with or experienced any type of uh, imposter syndrome. Oh shit! <laughs> <laughs> Why are you coming for me? I know. Coming for me? You got my notes, Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to learn. I think I have some really, um, you know, and I've, and I've spoken to leaders, uh, you know, especially at the building I work at, um, you know, until just recently, uh, everybody above me was white, and only one of the leaders was a woman. Um, 
so it was really interesting having um, these really like personal conversations about identity and how to approach people and be more inclusive, um, you know, with that audience. But um, I think for me, some of the things that I face um, in terms of imposter syndrome comes from not necessarily um, growing up in an area where um, you know, this felt like it was a path for me. It felt like this was something that was possible. I was the first person in my family to graduate from college. Um, you know, I grew up with a single single mom uh, who did an amazing job of taking care of me and my three siblings. Um, you know, but we definitely, uh, we, we struggled, we struggled, but we worked through and we're all doing great now. Um, you know, but there are times where I'm just thinking like, I don't look like anybody in this room. I don't fit in this room. And then for me, you know, there's that extra because I am a masculine presenting woman, um, you know, so I wear clothes that are not form fitting, you know, and 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 that's just who I am. But I, I am still a woman, um, you know, and it can definitely make or break a whole situation between you and one of your leaders. If the first time you meet them, you walk into a room and they misgender you. Now, all of a sudden, they feel awkward talking to you and because they don't want to talk to you you lose out on a promotion or a project that would be perfect for you. Um, so there are a lot of times where I have to figure out how to, how to really fit in, um, you know, and, and tread lightly. And I'm still kind of in that place where it's like, okay, I belong, but I need to belong in a box still. So I'm kind of trying to break out of that box um, and say like, no, I belong as I am. <laughs> uh, so that's kind of what I deal with when it comes to like feeling like an imposter that I don't necessarily belong in the situations that I sometimes end up in. Mm -hmm. yeah, interesting. Imposter. I, I would say, all right, you know, I, I could kind of identify with your background, um, you know, having grew up in the inner city um, when I had to go live with my grandmother because my parents struggled with alcoholism. So I know for me, first of all, I live with my parents up until uh, age 11 in Jamaica, Queens, the middle class area. When I came to Astoria from age 11 to I left for college, it was the, the hood, you know, story housing projects. That's how I know Daniel, we grew up near each other. But I was always, even when I lived with my parents, I always went to these private schools, you know, that were really good. And so it was always like, I'm the kid going to the different neighborhood, you know how that is. And that was kind of like my plight, you know, all through, I guess, sports in a sense, you know, and, you know, I'm always uh, the black girl on the team, you know, it's very, very few and trying to, to fit in, but also struggling not to be labeled as like that project in a sense, you know what I'm saying? Because mm -hmm. my grandmother worked hard, my family worked hard, uh, all my grandmother's kids went to college. And the thing is, it's trying to change that narrative because the first thing when I got success, you know, and I'm this high, highly touted, um, touted athlete and you know, the brands want me now, it's, um, hey, rags the richest story, you know? So I'm fighting against that. Like, that's not my narrative. And seeing how society kind of like wanted to create that for me. And then you, for, okay, out of sports, me stepping into a different realm. So now I'm, I have a great, a great career. And everyone's like, expect me to coach, like you were saying, Vivian, you know, you, you, you got out of coaching. I knew when I finished playing basketball, I knew that I didn't want to coach, you know, no, no knocking anyone um, that's out there doing it. But I knew I wanted to make an impact in my community for the brown faces that look like mine, you know, all the people that came back and nurtured and gave to me. But then I am um, I, I was struggling with uh, my mental health, you know, and went through that whole thing, you know, being diagnosed with bipolar, you know, struggling publicly. So now 
I'm considered a person that's overcome this great person. Now I'm considered a person that can't do the work. <laughs> so now it's like, hey, like I'm, I'm trying to live my life, but it's like, you know, like people are like, who are you? So it's been that constant, constant struggle for me. But I realized the thing that's helped me push forward is understanding and understand learning the power uh, of my voice. You know, that's that's been mm-hmm. the key. I, I was Daniel probably tell you Ashley, I was always so quiet, like just kind of like to myself. But you get to the point of you know people always trying to to write your story, you know, control your mm-hmm. narrative. That I'm like jumped out there, like all right, what do you want to say? this is me, this is who I am, and to live in my truth. And I, I would say that can be intimidating, though, too, to a mm-hmm. lot of people, because now it's just like, I don't care what I say. And right. when I was that right. athlete at the, at the table, you know, I'm at the table now with, you know, these companies and stuff, and it's just like my head's like, okay, yes. Now it's like, oh, I don't agree with that. I don't, I don't think, I don't yeah. think your policy, Dennis is like, oh, oh, but <laughs> hey, it is what it is, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think um, it might shock all of you on this podcast to hear, but uh, the labor movement is predominantly white cis male. I know, big surprise. Um, sorry to ruin your image. Um, so to you know, to ask whether or not there's been any challenges on the path to leadership in a movement that's white male, white cis male dominated. Um, you know, a couple here and there. Um, I know Shawnee. Uh, can also attest to that. I think, um, you know, as far as imposter syndrome goes, of course, right? We're navigating systems not set up for our success, right? We've got this dominant culture that tells us leadership is supposed to present in one very specific way. And if you don't lead in that way, or if your style is different than the dominant culture, then maybe you're not the right leader. Maybe you're not ready. Maybe you're not who, you know, maybe maybe this isn't right for you. Um, and then as soon as you, as, as soon as you start to embrace your authentic self, then it's, you know, fighting back against the uh, narrative that you're just an angry black woman, right? When in fact, you know, I might be angry, but that's not to say that my anger is not justified, right? Um, so yeah, I mean, I've suffered from um, imposter syndrome um, throughout my journey, still do, right? Um, I have a cohort of, you know, women of color labor leaders that I meet with regularly, Shawnees um, among them, you know, we lift each other up, um, support each other, um, you know, provide a sounding board when you're frustrated. Um, And I think more importantly, we strategize together for how we're going to impact change. I can agree with a lot of the sentiment of you ladies, Um, you know, inner city kid and I went away to boarding school for high school. Um, so I kind of got it both ways where I didn't really fit in. And then when I came home, it was like, well, you, you sound white. And I'm like, well, I've always talked like this. You know, what is sounding white? You know, I've, what, I'm speaking proper. Um, and, you know, so from both sides, it was like, where do I fit in? And, and that's where I just had to learn to be myself. And then when you get into corporate America, you know, like things really aren't, they're not made for us. You know, they're not made for us to succeed. And whenever you speak in a meeting or you have an opinion or something, just like you said, you know, you get labeled as the angry black woman. So how do you say, like, we're the probably the only people that really have to change our tone, change our body language, change everything about us to make other people mm-hmm. feel like we're not threatened. Mm-hmm. 
you know, and so we have a group um, at the NBA where it's predominantly black women and we, we discuss those things and really just try to talk about how do you deal with certain situations without being labeled, you know, the angry black woman. Oh, man, I feel like my wife needs to be on this call. I asked Stacey Abrams once um, how she pushed back on that narrative, the angry black woman, how she maintained her authenticity and pushed back on that narrative. And she said, you know, sometimes I am an angry black woman, but my anger is cold, focused and effective. And um, I've been carrying that with me since she said it. So. That's real cold, 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 focus, cold, focused, and effective, and effective. Okay. And I was like, I'm with that. Okay. I yeah. gotta write that down. I was hoping that she was gonna win. I lived in Atlanta for uh, a long time, and I have a home there, and I was, I was rooting for her. I really was. Yeah, she would have made a big difference. We would have had a. Uh, had, had her and the mayor named Keisha, Atlanta would have been really been winning. <laughs> okay. Um, so for me, in my background, I come from the industrial trades. So so I've always been the, the token, right? The young uh, woman of color. And so um, in this world, it was like, let's showcase Shawnee. Look, we're diverse. Look, look what we have. We have a Shawnee. Um, <laughs> And in the beginning, I always felt like, well, am I smart enough to be in these spaces or am I just here because I fit the mold of what you want to present? Am I here for optics or am I here because you want to hear what I have to say? Um, and then same thing, coming from a, a background where I don't have a traditional four-year degree, um, I'm a hustler. So I got my position by working my ass off to get there. Um, mm -hmm. And so I'm sitting in spaces with congressional delegates. I sit in the room with the governor. I sit with all these folks who have uh, traditional political science degrees and I don't. And often, still do, I still suffer from it. I'm, I'm learning as I've gotten older, but um, what do I bring to this table? Um, and then I think for us, for April and I in our world, it's there's a sense of moral licensing, um, which is kind of like this concept of we've done good deeds, right? We've elected April. April, the first black woman to do this. Now let's close the door because we already have one. We've done something good and it, it mm -hmm. liberates to go back to doing bad deeds. So now we can just elect all white men after her because look, we did it. Um, and so for us, our job is even harder. Like my arms are tired because we have to hold this door open. Not only do we hold the door open for more Aprils and Shawnees, but we're on the community grabbing them, escorting them into the room to sit at the table with us. And so it's definitely not a job where I can say, okay, I'm tired and I'm done. Um, I don't have that luxury. And so like April was saying, our cohort is so important for our mental health and for our sustainability, because it definitely keeps us focused on what we're trying to do in our movement. Yeah. All right. So, uh, Shmikwa, I know that you know you big into mental health, um, and you know me, you had talks. When I hear about mental health things, it's always from a male's perspective. So I was just wondering, um, can you describe some of the challenges that women face with um, as far as mental health? Oh man, I was I was just talking to a, a woman the other day, and you know she was having a really difficult time. You know, being home, um, in the relationship uh, with the kids' dad isn't the best. You know, managing um, the kids, and I had to tell her just take a second, get out the house, uh, give me a call, and I'm like, you know, you're wearing like for her. I'm I'm just using her example is that she's wearing so many different hats. You know what I'm saying? And this okay for her not to be okay you know you just have to say hey i need a break you know and 
it's a lot of mothers out there that feel like they have to do everything. They have to be the number one uh, partner. You know, they have to, uh, you know, take care of the kids. And it's about finding balance in their in their lives. And I think also, um, as women, compared to the men that I work with, also is that we're a little more vulnerable. <laughs> you know, we're we're a little more vulnerable. We want to um, try to figure it out. Uh, we're a little more open uh, with our with our feelings. Um, and with that, unfortunately, uh, comes sometimes a little backlash, you know what I'm saying? Because they're like, oh, man, you know, you women kind of always go through this. You're always emotional, you know, beings and stuff, uh, uh, things of that sort. But at the end of the day, it's just for us to, to understand that we don't have to carry that weight all the time on our backs. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's, it's okay to take time out. Like, today, you know what? I, I can't be there for, for everyone. I need this 15 minutes uh, to myself. And when I talk to, you know, I, I'm a mom now and I was listening to you. Um, what's, uh, what's, is it Vivian? No, wait, Vivian. Uh, no, wait, no. I can't see the names anymore. I'm sorry. Oh, Shawnee. <laughs> Shawnee, 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 Shawnee. And I'm listening and she's like, you know, I'm trying to try to balance these five kids. And, it, and, and I get it. You know, you want to be there. You, you love them, but it's okay to say, you know what, I got to make sure I'm okay. It's the whole concept of when you're on a plane, you know, they, they tell you if it's going down, you know, make sure you put the equipment on yourself first, you know what I'm saying, mm -hmm. before you take care of anyone else. So that's really, um, as I step into it, letting people know it's okay, because for me, I carried that. I had to take care of my, my family, you know. I, I wanted to, to be successful. I wanted to be that leader on my team. I looked myself in the mirror every day and saying, oh, man, I got to be perfect. And for me, my life, the quality of life didn't improve until I realized that I'm not perfect. I'm human. And sometimes I need my little space, my little time to, to, to grow. Yeah. And I think it's it's so true what you said. Like, we have to we have to take ourselves away from thinking that we have to do everything. And I think that's a burden that women specifically carry, that we have to make sure everything is handled. And black um, women. You know. Black women. <laughs> yes. Everything. Yes. Everything has a burden. You feel me? <laughs> Um, you know, but I think we have to get to a point where we normalize taking care of yourself. Like Skylar Diggins should not be playing while she's pregnant. You feel me? Like right, I actually right. ended up stepping down um, from coaching, and uh, you know the reason was mental health. And I and you know it was really hard for me because I, I love connecting with players and stuff. Um, but I but I preach to them like you are bigger than basketball and you matter more than just a sport. Mm -hmm. So if there's anything that you need outside of this, you got to talk about it. Right. And I couldn't preach that to them and not be living it myself. I couldn't tell them how to be healthy when I was unhealthy. So I had mm -hmm. to step away. And thankfully, they were all very understanding. But, you know, now it's the same thing at work. I almost feel like I can't take the time I need. But I fought myself very hard with that. And I'm in therapy and I will always vouch for therapy. And, uh, you know, I, I'm on uh, mental health related uh, uh, intermediate uh uh, intermittent leave. So, you know, the days where my anxiety is just getting to be too much, you know, mm -hmm. I, I, my bosses know, my team knows, and there are days I just got to go and take care of me before I can take care of anything in the warehouse, before I can take care of any robots, any test plans, any of that stuff. Mm -hmm. I got to make sure that I'm taken care of first. And how do we normalize that? Because I think that's the real question, right? How do we normalize feeling good at work? A lot of people don't know what feeling good is to them. Mm -hmm. Taking that time to like get to know who you are and put all the other stuff aside. Um, mm -hmm. I know it's taken me a long time to really 
find myself again, you know, but I, I've taken that journey and, you know, through conversations with me, through conversations with my mom, through conversations with my family, you know, I've been able to get back on that path again. So Ashley, for you, and I would like to throw this out for everyone. Um, you said finding yourself again. Do you find yourself getting lost in one identity and trying to like find things that you enjoy about yourself outside of that? Or what do you mean by that? No, I, no, I don't find myself having like another identity or anything like that. It's more so of just things that I was doing was out of the norm of what I would typically do. Mm-hmm. And... Mm-hmm. And it was just like, you know, that's not, that's not who you are. Mm-hmm. You know, you are such and such. This is how you were raised. This is how you typically do things. And just really breaking it down to its simplest form as to who I am and then building myself back up. Yeah. yeah. I think I read somewhere that women spend most of our time undoing things we've learned. So we're <laughs> undoing all these things we learned. To then get to the point where now now we can figure out who it is we are, right? And then yeah. add it, we're always evolving. The older we get, the more we learn, the more we learn about ourselves. But then we're constantly doing this cycle all over again. Um, for me, mental health is very personal. I uh, My mother suffers from bipolar depression. Um, mm-hmm. And it was challenging. It still is challenging. But definitely mm-hmm. growing up was very challenging, trying to um, mm-hmm. be there for her as her support person um, mm-hmm. without being sucked in. Right. How do you balance that um, being there for her, but also saying, okay, this is not my journey. um, And how do I help you, um, but allow you to help yourself? And I think unlike what Shamika was saying, I'm like, nope, I'm I'm not vulnerable. I'm strong. I got it. As black women, right. We we use this our resilience um, as an admirable admirable trait. And it's not Mm -hmm. necessarily always that way. Um, I'm finally now within the last five years, um, learning to become vulnerable and what grace that looks like and the beauty in that, that's, that's more scary than anything else. I think it's just showcasing that, but um, I have a great family and husband who are very supportive of that. Uh, Vivian was saying, seeing a counselor, that has been the best thing I could ever done for myself. But therapy is for people when you get to the point, no, it's to help you. It's to help you along that journey. And it's not what I thought. It's not like, let's unpack your childhood. It's nothing like that. It's definitely like, what are some tangible tools you can take um, to make you more efficient in your life? Like what can help me do my job, become a better partner, become a better mother. And that has been the best thing for me. Yeah. I think that's right. What you said, Shawnee, about the vulnerability, right? That, um, you know, taking care of our mental health um, and being open and transparent about what we need um, in order to be healthy requires a vulnerability that I think women of color aren't afforded in professional spaces. You know, many of us come into these positions and feel like there is such a slim margin for error um, and that any mistake could uh, cost us um, significantly in our professional tracks, that uh, to be vulnerable is really hard um, and to openly admit what you need as far as your self-care is really challenging. So I, I appreciate you lifting that up. Yeah, I, I have like a question and you guys do, do most, does, you can just raise your hands. Is everyone here like working in, a, in an office, like you're going into an office or you're working from home? Like when in normal life. Yeah. yeah. 
so is I notice like when I'm doing like the corporate stuff, okay, I feel like the environments that are healthy are like those new open offices. When when the people have the, the, the cubicles, it's just like a different energy that's like carried and I'm and I always tell them I'm like they're always saying uh like when we have like an open table, they're complaining about different things or whatever. And I'm like, okay, everybody's dealing with something, right? Do you ever ask your coworker, the person you complain about with the attitude, how are they doing today? I think it creates this like cutoff. And you guys can tell me if you, you feel that way mm-hmm. or, or not. Yeah, I think that's corporate culture. I had uh, someone very significant say to me, uh, you know, I don't feel like I can talk to this person. They told me they have an open door policy, but I don't feel like I can talk to this person. And I said, I think that's what you get when you come into the cultures and they're set a certain way. I said, but if somebody told me they had an open door policy, guess what? I'm going in there anytime I got a question. I don't care if you're eight levels ahead of me or one. You said you're open. We going to talk when I got a problem. And I and I feel like that's part of like, I guess, bucking the trend of of what that culture feels like. Like, yeah, I'm available, but not actually being available. You tell me you're available. Guess what? That's your bad because you shouldn't have told me that in the first place. Yeah. yeah I don't know I think what you just like yeah um, cubicles and walls are a, vis- a, a physical representation mm-hmm. of you know um, emotional walls sometimes right and uh, open spaces aren't um, can be challenging to work in but I think that there's probably a good um, hybrid I've seen offices where there's like open space for folks to work collaboratively and then um, some private space for folks who need, you know, who just process different okay. and need, you know, time away from folks. I think that hybrid model is really healthy. Okay. Yeah. Because I'm always curious, like, when I go around and it seems like the offices that are flowing and everybody's talking. And I'm like, is this really, like, helping? <laughs> I was just curious, <laughs> curious about it. Yeah. All right. I have another question, but I'll wait till later. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, um, a lot of these companies now, though, they do have like offices with no doors so everybody can collaborate. Um, that's something mm-hmm. that I've noticed, you know, and um, Vivian, I agree with you on that open door policy. I be having so many questions, especially I used to work for Amazon, too. I worked for Amazon off and on for like when I was when I wasn't playing basketball and I just needed a, you know, a quick job, or whatever. I worked at Amazon for like eight, nine years. So okay. I always had questions for, the, for all the managers and everything and, and stuff <laughs> like that. You know what I'm saying? Um, yeah. <laughs> But yeah, um, all right, so this question is for Vivian, Ashley, and uh, Shamiqua, and I just wanna, want y'all to explain your experience from you know transitioning you know, from the sports world, waking up every day, training, you know how it is, you know the routine, but all of a sudden now you went to the business life. You know, Just describe some of the things that helped you along the way or possibly held you back. Oh gosh. Well, ladies, did y'all feel like uh, like you died? <laughs> a part of you, right? Not- yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting transitioning. Um, I think for me, it, it it actually drove me to want to transition more. Um, oddly enough, as I got fired, people hate when I say that because I didn't actually got fired get fired, but the, the head coach at the school I was at uh, was let go. So we all get let go, but I was fired essentially. And uh, that was literally the first time in my life, I think probably from the time I was 12 years old that I had a summer to do whatever I wanted, you know? Mm-hmm. And at this point I'm 26 years old, 27 years old. 
And I'm like, shoot, I can go travel. I don't got to worry about no recruiting periods. Like I can go do whatever I want. And that kind of made me realize like, like, yeah, I love this, but like, I don't know, maybe there's more out there, you know? And that's what really made me want to explore it. No lie, having the routine every day, getting up, going to practice or workouts, conditioning, whatever, getting up and making sure you're eating right and doing all those things watching film, those things, having that, um, I miss, not because of the things that they are, but because of the routine that they built in my life. And sometimes Mm -hmm. it's hard to get into a routine um, outside of that, I think, because that was where I was really good at. What can I do to maximize my performance as an athlete? What can I do to maximize my performance as a coach? Um, and I'm not there yet in the business world of how I can best maximize my performance every day as a as a, a manager, as a leader um, at Amazon. So those are things I'm still working through every day. <laughs> and, you'll, and, you'll, and you'll get there. You know, I think sometimes like in that transition piece, we don't realize the tools that we've been putting away, um, learning how to, you know, just great communicators, learning how to be goal oriented. Um, you know, being just an open person. I mean, we played and lived all over the world. And I think, you know, the, that experience, being able to talk to talk to anyone from, you know, president of the United States to the man, you know, on the side of on the, on the street homeless, you know, I think sports has prepared us for all that. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. No, hold on now. You can't just throw in president of the United States, okay? We're not all freaking superstar no, champions no. like that, okay? All casual. <laughs> <laughs> oh, casual. <laughs> I'm just saying, um, you know, we we all president president of your company. You know, it's just, uh, mm-hmm. but it feels like a part of you dies because since I, I was playing basketball from like 11 or 12, like a lot of athletes, and then at 33, I have an Achilles injury, and it's just like, oh my god, what am I gonna do next? Oh, you know, you're crying, you're frustrated, <laughs> and that's. That's just because you had that structure um, in place, you know? And I didn't look at the fact, oh, man, I'm a great community person. People love me. I love, uh, you know, the relationships that I built, you know, understanding the icon, good eye contact, a strong handshake, and most importantly, realizing the, the power of your voice. Like a closed mouth, my grandma said, doesn't get you fed. So it's learning mm-hmm. the things that you want, you have to ask for, you know? And I think that's what we struggle with as athletes because a lot of people who we're playing are just doing things for us, you know? We're kind of catered to. And then when the ball or whatever stops, it's like, okay, people are still there, but they they slow down a little bit, but you got to ask for it. And we're, we're afraid to. We're, we're, we're afraid to put ourselves in those positions. Yeah, I think that's, I, I kind of struggled a little bit with that. You know, I, I got my first uh, my first entry into the coaching world at Gonzaga, uh, you know, where I was an alum. And I'm, I'm grateful for it. I worked hard for it. I actually volunteered my first year, didn't get paid and worked uh, whenever I could at a, a restaurant to make money, um, you know, but the next year uh, they were impressed and they were like, all right, well, we'll give you a position. You know, you've earned it, you've worked hard and you've shown that you can do it. But, you know, I think I was able to get in that position to volunteer because of what I was to that program. And, you know, uh, you, you meet people as an athlete that are willing to give you jobs and those kinds of things. And and you, you run out of that when you get out of that realm. Um, but I, I've taken what I've learned in the basketball world and after games going and talking to little kids and their parents and, and just building those relationships. 
and move that into the, the, the networking world. You know, I love to go out and talk to people and find out about their jobs because I found jobs that I didn't even know exist. Like I yeah. had no idea that Amazon has a, a global department for diversity and inclusion. And I'm like, wow, I think I just found my dream job. Thank you for letting me know about what you do for work. I'm coming for your organization because that's where I want to be, you know? But if I don't talk to people, <laughs> I never know that exists. So it's like, all right. <laughs> Well, um, this question is from April, you know. Um, oh. Yeah. So what is it like to be the first <laughs> black woman to be the secretary treasurer of the Washington state? You know, like what are some of the challenges that a woman like yeah. you in this world of labor and the things being done differently to make sure women who are entering the work workforce are, um, you know, being treated um, correct? Yeah. No, I love this question. Thanks for asking. Um, no it's a it's an honor and it's a real privilege. Um, I feel a lot of responsibility to, can I cuss on this show? You know, I represent labor, so we, we cuss a lot. I just don't want to, I want to know where I'm at. Like if I, if I drop an F-bomb, it'll be well timed, but I just want to check in. I don't want to blow up your spot. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, like I feel a lot, a lot of responsibility not to fuck it up. So, you know, um, you know, make sure that I'm holding the door open for the leaders that will come behind me um and you know even if that means sometimes i gotta grab i gotta drag them cricket kicking and screaming um shawnee i'm looking at you <laughs> and um but it is a it is a you know like i mentioned on my when i um introduced myself you know i know the difference that this movement makes right that the union can make in the lives of workers and families and communities and um, that I have an opportunity to impact what our movement looks like moving forward um, is a privilege. They say, you know, figure out, find out what you would do for free and then figure out how to get paid for it. And I feel like I've done that um, in, you know, the work that I've done in the labor movement and particularly in this position. I think, um, you know, being a black woman leader in the labor movement, um, you know, is allowing us to provide a more intersectional lens to the social justice work that we do. Um, you know, and it's proof that representation matters. You know, just um, you'll notice that, you know, I have my uh, pronouns um, yeah, listed. Yeah. This is a, a change that we've made throughout our organization, asking wow. folks to identify their gender pronouns. And the conversations haven't been comfortable for some folks. But um, what we do know is that demographically, the labor movement is changing. You know, the Center for Economic Policy and Research predicts or estimates that by 2025, women will make up the majority of our labor movement at 53%. I mean, that's in four years. Women will be the majority of this movement, and yet we hold fewer than 10% um, leadership positions nationwide. So, you know, if we want to be relevant, um, to workers moving forward, then our leadership has to reflect the members. I mean, whether you work in a nonprofit or uh, you work for a corporation, I think everyone can agree that the most uh, effective, competitive, and creative organizations are also the most diverse. And that mm -hmm. attitude has to extend to who we're electing to serve in leadership positions if we want to be relevant moving forward. So, I, you know, being able to just talk about that um, mm -hmm. from this position is a real privilege. Um, thanks for asking. Oh, no wow. problem. No, no problem. Listen, uh, 
women rock. I love all of y'all, man. You know, um, y'all definitely inspiring, man. You know, y'all y'all work hard. Um, y'all have a lot on y'all plate all the time and stuff. You know, and I just I just salute I just salute y'all so much. You know, um, so this these questions are for uh, April and Shawnee. You know, so uh, Shawnee, like describe if you can. You know, what do you do? Oh my goodness, um, Shawnee does it all. I'm gonna let her go first. <laughs> oh, <laughs> um, so most of my work um, is political. Okay. I'm a political and legislative director. So I do all of the electoral work. So um, interviewing candidates, you know, having my members come and sit down and talk with candidates, real people, addressing their real issues on how these elected officials that we elect are going to support us, whether that's from the president of the United States all the way down to our a school board member, our city council members. I'm a walking, I love local government. I think that's, that's where it starts. Um, mm-hmm. and that's what got me interested into politics. It's, it's tangible, it's touchable. It's something I can understand. Um, and so how do we convey that message to real workers that they can participate in this? You don't have to be, it's, it's not rocket science, right? It's, it's, this is what I'm, what's important to me and my family. This is how you can help me, end of story. Very simple. Um, getting members to go down to our state capitol to lobby and talk about these issues face to face. Easy to say, here's workers, but it's another thing to say, this is April Sims worker. And this is how this policy is really gonna impact her and her family. Um, mm-hmm. We work on, um, I know labor talks a lot about like wages, hours and working conditions. That's kind of like our, our stigma, but as April was saying, our movement's changing and we talk about trans issues we talk about women's rights we are the catalyst on every social justice avenue it has been labor and i think that message has gotten muddled and lost over the last few years and it's starting to resurrect and we're starting to make it another revolution on what the labor movement really looks like and it, it looks like us sitting on this podcast um mm-hmm. not not the male pale and stale right that's but that's not who we represent. Um, okay. and, and so for me, it's, it's, it's really important about inclusion on what I do, right? Um, I always feel like we invite people, real people, to this process on decisions that are already made for them, right? So growing up, my mom gave me a choice. She told me I could not wear pants, but what I could choose was, do I want to wear a pink dress or I can wear a yellow dress? That is not true participation. Right. When she hears me speak, because I was like, that is that's a shit that you did, but that's what it is. Um, and that's what we do in leadership. We we empower people for a certain amount of time and then we delegate that power to somebody else. Um, and that's not something we want the labor movement to do anymore. Um, we really want to empower our members to do the things that we can do. I want to work myself out of the job. I want to make sure that there are lots of people down at the Capitol talking about our issues, chiming yeah. on Facebook, knocking on the doors, pounding the pavement for candidates. Um, <laughs> that's so in a in a labor in the labor uh, field as far as like um, how's that like I know it's inclusive of dis- disabled too disability. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, how how is how is that fight going in Washington? It's very important for us to have uh, stakeholders at the table from every community, right? right? When we're looking at policy, um, the worst policy is just having a few folks in the room. We try to get every community to sit at the table so it has a lens from every perspective. 
So when we're presenting that policy to elected officials, it's been vetted by all these hands. Um, so they're not going back to ask Joe Schmo over here, um, do you like this? Because Joe Schmo was already at the table when we were doing this and crafting that. And that's, I think, what labor tries to do. We really partner a lot with uh, community partners. Our density, as much as we love our institution, has declined over the years. I think we're at 11% right now. We can't do this work by ourselves. Um, and so we realized that and reached out um, and been good partners on building these coalitions to help do this work. Okay. Yeah, I was watching um, Crip, Crip Camp on the next Netflix, and it's a, a, a tremendous story. If y'all get the chance to check it out, uh, but it's about, um, you know, a gentleman's uh, fight with disability. And then I had the opportunity to meet, um, I did an event for the Secretary of Labor, and I was able to meet Julie Human, who's a big time um, activist as far as, um, uh, you know, just fighting for equality. And so it was just near and dear to my heart. But as I go around and I'm in different states, I started to hear like different things, uh, you know, from highs to lows. And it, I just was curious about the state of Washington. You know, that's the, so I might, I might bug you later. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about it from the labor council's work. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. I would just say that, um, you know, so I think about it more in terms of like representation and how we operate internally. And I don't know if that's necessarily your question. If the question is more like, how do we work on policies that impact uh, folks with disabilities? Or is it more like institutionally, how are we um, engaging folks with disabilities? Uh, the policies. The policies? Yeah, so I mean, you know, we have, uh, we work in coalition with uh, partners that, um, especially around healthcare um, and the fight to access to the fight for access to quality and affordable health care and how that impacts folks with disabilities, both seen and unseen, because, you know, when we when folks think about disabilities, I think they automatically go towards uh, physical disabilities and the ones that you can identify with the eye. Um, but how are we raising awareness and working on policies that affect or impact folks with the unseen disabilities? You know, my um, my oldest daughter has, uh, you know, she's deaf in one ear and has a hearing disability, but it's unseen. So I see the way she um, moves through the world with a disability that folks don't readily identify um, and you know how she has to uh, be an advocate for herself. So in terms of policies, um, I'd be happy to talk to you offline if they're about specific policies that we're right. hoping to work on. Um, when it comes to you know issues around disability, we really let our coalition partners lead. Um, okay. We want to make sure that the folks that are most impacted are that we're centering the solutions with um, centering them in the solutions. Right. So we show up more as um, partners, coalition partners and weigh in on those issues, but we don't necessarily lead on those issues. Oh, OK. Gotcha. Thank that you. Yeah, yeah it's def it's def I was in uh, Washington, uh, Tacoma for a big conference there. Uh, hey, organization. my city. <laughs> oh, really? My city. Yes. Tacoma. Um, so they work with uh, like the homeless population or whatever and also disability. I can't think of it offhand, but they're just doing tremendous work. And I was just really like touched by it. So. Awesome. Oh, great. Well, you'll have to hit me up next time you're in town. Oh, I will, definitely. <laughs> All right. All right. We definitely state lead a lot of the policy that hits the national level. Like, we are yeah. the catalyst on a lot of progressive policy. Um, many yeah. of the, the good pieces that D.C. is actually taking is stolen from this Washington state. 
Oh, wow. That's yeah. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, and Shani mentioned that, um, you know, labor density uh, nationwide is just under 11%, but in Washington State, we're uh, close to 20%. We're at about two times the national average, and we proudly boast having the third highest union density in the nation. So um, there's a, a lot of labor engagement, and, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's led to some really, um, some really progressive uh, policies, like indexing the minimum wage to uh, the CPI, passing paid safe and sick leave, having the best paid family leave policy in the nation. I'll stop bragging now and move on, Daniel. My bad. No, 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 I'm just no, flexing. Just a little soft flex. Just a little soft flex. No, no, no. <laughs> trust me, trust me, trust me. You're supposed to do. You got to do that. Yeah. <laughs> awesome stuff. Yeah, listen, really good. You, you never know. You never know who you're inspiring on this on this conversation right now. So right, flex yeah. all the way, please, please. We, actually, we need we need more. You know, um, young minorities to you know want to do other things other than basketball and music. You yeah, know what I'm yeah, saying? So, yeah. yeah, please flex flex on. And um, yeah, and Shoshani's going to flex too right now. Max, I got Sean. I got a question. So. You know you you labor background, so just um describe some of the work you do in fighting for uh for workers and pay uh um, equity, and tell us about your work that you do with the uh young emerging uh, labor leaders. Come on, I'm gonna preface this um and have a caveat that I'm almost forty, um but in the labor movement that's young. <laughs> so it is. Right out there. <laughs> That is, and you're still holding it down, though, Shawnee. I mean, you might be close to be like you still out here representing. Um, so the Washington Young Emerging Labor Leaders was um, created in like 2010-ish. I'm showing my age here, 2010, um, because we were noticing as April was talking about the average, the average age of a worker um, was between 18 and 21 at that time, and there was just a big disconnect in what the labor movement is. For most of us coming in, we have no idea what a union is. I had no clue. Um, I just saw that I was going to make $23 an hour at 19. And I was like, hell yeah. Um, But doing this work, I realized all the benefits and what the movement really represented. So we were looking at a way of uh, messaging what we do to younger workers, making it fun, right? Not old, stale, male, pale, like we say. So we call it not your daddy's labor movement. Um, (laughs) we talk about working hard and playing hard Um, we would do when Seattle wanted to pass its sick leave we did a pup crawl um, which is kind of an innovative way of organizing we went to each and every pub we would solicit and patronize if they were willing to put a sign in their window saying I support sick leave in Seattle and so that was just a really great way of an easy introduction to activism um, with Mm -hmm. a twist so it made it fun and engaging. And I think that's something that we're learning to do more of. And now with COVID and this virtual world, it's okay. really expanded a lot and it's giving us a platform to kind of um, see how we can play with some of that. But, you know, for April and I, this is, is a passion and we've done this work a long time, but for someone new coming in, they don't want a phone bank for a candidate. They don't want to call people. They don't want to sit at a, a boring Robert's Rules union meeting, right? You're they killing me they're at right we want to meet them where they're at um and engage them and bring them in and once we capture them then we can get them hooked onto the union message and we have tons of activists out there in the world for us and so i think that's the mission that we've been trying to do um and it's been really successful our program 
we first started off with Washington Yale, it started off with 15 young workers, mostly women. Um, the men that got a little, I, I'm going to throw you guys under the bus, Daniel, the men who got a little bit of success from our leadership development program got their slices of pie and they went bye-bye. Whereas mm -hmm. the women who have started this program, we've all become, like when I started off, I was a secretary, you know, I was a receptionist. And now I'm the political director of one of the largest unions in the in, in the nation. Wow. But we come on. Yeah. Yeah. Flex. Show Say it, it again. Oh, Say it. Not even a soft flex, it's a hard flex. Hard come flex. On. I, 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 listen, I'm with April. Say it one more time. Yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah. I'm here for Say, it. Say for those in the back, please. Oh, Say for those in the back. <laughs> but, but we continue doing this work because we care about it. And I think that's something that women bring. We're nurturers by nature. And we need to nurture this work. And so even now with five kids and my husband being the biggest kid of all, I'm still able to continue doing the work that I'm doing in Washington, Yale. And you know, yeah, Shani, yeah. you are like a prime example of why diversity matters, right? You can't bring new voices into a movement with the same old bullshit. Yeah, like, that's, yeah. that's genius. That's yeah. genius. And all it takes is a little quid pro quo, right? We'll come and five yeah. if you put a sign in the, you know. I don't yeah. I agree. I haven't built this platform, right? I'm not on this pedestal. So I don't mind trying new shit and seeing if it works, right? Because I don't have anywhere to really fall from. I'm not up here where I'm gonna have this big collapse. I'm just down here. So let's try some stuff. Let's fail forward and figure yeah. out how we can make our movement more inclusive for others. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. I think your pedestal's a little higher though than you than you than you she's like, I'm down here. <laughs> So Shariqua, man, being one of the pioneers of basketball, yes, you are. All right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, lift that pedestal up a little bit. Listen, oh. I thought I could be a point forward because of you. Come on, me. <laughs> I, nah, I, I appreciate it. It seems so long ago, though. I mean, I've been retired. I'll be 43 this year, almost like 10 years. And it just seems like a a, a different life, you know? I It's just, I don't know. Like Daniel said, it's like when that ended, I had to like remove myself from that and just really work on my identity outside of sport, you mm -hmm. know? So it's just, it's interesting. When I think about some of the things I was able to accomplish, uh, you know, for myself and for women, women of color, uh i'm like wow like i did that <laughs> you know it's pretty cool let me tell you let me give you a span let me give you a, a seven year span of of Shemikra's, um accolades okay a seven year span she won four straight uh state championships in high school and then won three straight national championships in college all right so mm. there that go you know Come what i'm on. saying so yes yeah. <laughs> I, I, I appreciate that you know right. <laughs> No, but um, I, I just want to ask you a, um, a question. Like, what was your first, like, I made it purchase, you know? Um, and how did, how, how well did you feel the league prepared you? You know what I mean? Um, when you was coming in, how, how, how prepared was you? Well, the league did not uh, prepare me because still uh, women getting in those type of endorsement deals and uh, the type of hype around them had really never occurred. You know, I was that player where the brands, the, the Nike, the Gatorade, Nickelodeon, everybody wanted to like sign me. So it was uncharted waters, but luckily I had great um, mentors and family support. My coach, um, legendary coach, Pat Summit, rest in peace, and, and my grandmother, they were there 
um, to like guide me. Um, so my first purchase, what was my first purchase? I really wanted a truck, right? And mm -hmm. so my grandma's like, you're not getting that truck. You're not gonna spend that much money on it. And then I was like, grandma, like I've got my degree. I've done everything you want. This is what I wanna get for myself. So yeah, I, I purchased a, a SUV truck and went down to DC as, as a number one pick. Um, and just really uh, just kind of like figured life life out because when I when I listen to you guys talk about politics, you know, I was a poli sci major. Um, mm -hmm. I wanted to be a lobbyist, like that was in my in my spirit and my soul. And then I went moved to DC. Oh my God, <laughs> I got burnt out quick <laughs> <laughs> because it was always on the hill and watching people like sit around and basically, um, you know, hey, you scratch my back. I scratch yours and I got like tired of like watching that. I was like, this is something that I, I don't want to do, but I'm glad now, you know, all these years later to see women of color in there, like you guys making change, you know, being confident, you know, uplifting one another. So that's what it's, what it's all about. I wish I would have like been able to, you know, sort of stick with it in a sense, because I think it's very interesting, but you know, my journey was a different one. And um, that's what I was supposed to do. Have bad knees for the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> hey, but your journey don't stop, right? You can, right. You, you can still go lobby. I'm just saying. Yeah, it it, it doesn't. But you know, um, you know, it's just figuring out, you know, where you make change. And like you said, uh, I think it was April said, uh, when you when you love what you do, it's really not about the money. You know, money. My mm -hmm. my grandmother and coach told me it'll come. It, it, it it's gonna come. I want to wake up every day. I want to mm -hmm. feel good about what I do. I want to feel good about the people that you know, I impact. And I, I know in this society, this day and age, people, a lot of people don't understand that, you know, I yeah. think they're like, Oh, what are you, what are you doing? Why are you not doing this X, Y, and Z? I'm like, listen, like, I'm happy. <laughs> yes. I, you know, I, 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 I do well, you know, and so many doors has, have opened up because y'all don't understand, like probably, let me see, this is 2020. When I first retired basketball and I was dealing with like my challenges and um, trying to work through like issues with my mental health, Daniel will tell you guys, like people basically, like I was always held in high regard, basically just crapped on me, y'all. I'm serious. Like it was mm. just like really like a lot of negative stuff because when people don't know what's going on totally, people will create this, their own stories and stuff. And it wasn't until like I found the power of my voice to speak up and that every kind of like changed for me. So I'm just a person now that's operating in such uh, gratitude, you know, and just really want to stay close to those who were always there for me and just give back. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. So um, what do you think the growth of WNBA from, from when you came in until today? Oh, man, I think it's uh, amazing. And it's amazing to me. Um, I, the game, yeah, exciting. But I love how these women have found their voice, you know, and mm -hmm. the, the power in telling their story. Um, it's really great. That's the that's the big change, you know. They're not taking, hey, you know what? Here here's a quarter. They're like, man, like take this quarter, throw it back at you. <laughs> back when the league first started, they would have just took that quarter okay. and been happy yeah. with it, you know? Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, this is, oh wow, this is what we got. Now they're like, no, we deserve more. Like mm -hmm. they're challenging, you know, and they're getting and they're getting more, you know, and it's time you know it's not gonna 
be something that happens uh, overnight, but I mean, I just love it and the impact that they're making in their communities. You know, the game the game has changed in that regard. You know, mm-hmm. because if you look at the salaries just for WNBA, I think Daniel, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you know a player plays three or four, four months and they're making max one one something, right? It was like so one you, six at one point. I remember right. That. Yeah. So before it's like, all right, four months, make this 106. Some people might just chill and, and until the season comes back around. A lot of people were able to make 10 times more, five times more playing overseas. But now these women are like, okay, I make this amount of money in four months. Let me really give to my community. Let me like really start to uh, create community economics. And then in return, mm-hmm what happens? The communities are giving to them. So they're giving so much. And then when they retire, who's there to lift you up? Your community. So it's really great to see them engaging more. That's what I get um, I get really excited about. When I think about the growth of WNBA, um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think it's come a really long way. But I, I really think the thing that's improved and will continue to improve the game is the markability of the women athletes because mm-hmm. they've decided mm-hmm. to find their voice. And, you know, I don't mean to keep hyping you, but, you know, I think of, you know, the the Houston team, the comments, you know, they, they really showed us what markability was in oh, women's basketball. Right. Mm-hmm. I think of your Slam magazine cover and everybody's lying if they say that's not one of the top five <laughs> hardest covers on Slam. You feel me? But that's those are the types of things that show in the long term, women's basketball can be marketable. You just have to find the right ways to do it. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think about the WNBA. The WNBA has had a long history, and it wasn't always all money. You right. know, it wasn't until really Magic and Bird came around that they started mm-hmm. really getting that upswing, you know? Yep. And I, I see us going into that stage now. You know, you have high school players who are getting hype, like Paige. You have Sabrina Ionescu, that, uh, Ionescu, sorry, um, who you have NBA players tweeting about. Like, we're getting to that stage now where we're getting that hype. But, like, mm-hmm. it's really grown. Um, but there's always been hints that, like, the women's game can be marketable. It's just about doing it the right way and finding that niche, you know? Yeah, right, exactly. you're right. I, I mm-hmm. always think about mm-hmm. Pat Summit, Hall of Fame, a legendary coach, amazing woman, you know, starts coaching at the University of Tennessee, made 14, was it $4,000? And then four wow. did the laundry, and then she became the highest paid coach, making one point five million a year in a thirty-seven year span. So mm-hmm. you put the work in, you're diligent, you don't settle. It's it's, it's gonna change. It's gonna change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I still think that I still think that when um I read about the women's you know getting upgraded, like the average contract is like one hundred and thirty grand now. I still think that's too low. You know, I, I still think it's very, it's very, very low still, to, to be honest. Yeah. That's my opinion, you know. I, I just think that it's too low. They got this certain amount of players that make 500 grand. I'm like, okay, all right, these women are, you know, they're still making, what, $3.7 million over in Europe. Like, why we can't get them up to, to that level and stuff? How do you feel about now that um, players are being paid for what they deserve, even though I said it's low? And why do you think right. it took so long to have yeah, people pay? Well, um, I, you know, I wish Ashley was on. So in our discussions, you know, finally, you know, the WNBA, I guess, was uh, operating under the same, um, you know, business as the NBA for a long time, you know, people helping. And now they branched off and they have their own, uh, you know, own uh, team, basically, you know, people that can go out and get marketing deals for them, you know, people that schedule any things as far as their community work. So I think that's the big shift, you know, and you have to recognize yourself as a brand before you can 
become a brand, you know? Um, And I learned that in in college because, you know, it was like, yeah, you know, we we had our own athletic department. Uh, We had our own head. It wasn't like Tennessee had one athletic director. The women had their own, you know? We had our whole thing with the Lady Balls and we knew who we were. We knew our identity. So we went out and things were created for us. That's what it was created for under that umbrella. So I think it's the same thing with the W now. I mean, I got gear now. I got... WNBA water bottles I travel with, the real nice ones. WNBA <laughs> merchandise being sold on the website. Come on now. Like, my guy friends are hitting me up. Man, yeah, I was on NBA.com. And um, they have the WNBA site now. Go check it out, Daniel. WNBA gear, everything. I mean, come on. Like, that's exciting. <laughs> So if any of if any of y'all can give advice to your younger self, give me one example. Can I ask a quick question before we go into that one? You don't mind, Daniel? Yes, yours. So I think when we were asked to come on the conversation, it was sports and solidarity. And I for many folks, I don't think they recognize that um, the WNBA and NBA are also underneath the collective bargaining agreement, which is a union per se. Yeah. Um, the same the same realm that April and I work in negotiating mm-hmm. contracts. Um, and so what is a way for you guys um, as players and ex-players that the labor movement can support you in these efforts for equality because it is solidarity and you are our sisters in the movement? Right. right. Oh, wow. I, uh, I think, I think, oh man, that's a, that's a good one. Um, you know, I think anything like with your with your guys' platform and being out in the community is like story the story uh, telling and sharing. You know, sharing our journey with others because unfortunately we don't get that much visibility. You know, mm-hmm. and it's some, mm-hmm. circles, some places where you can say, hey, let me bring this up during the summer. You got a team in Seattle, a very successful uh, team in the state of Washington, and being able to you know just share share the stories of what some of the women are going going through, uh, sharing that journey of coming into the league, not having a lot of resources at your fingertips, so now how it's grown and seeing that opportunity when you're consistent, you know what I'm saying, and you just go out there and you work for something. So as much as you can share that, that 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 right there, I think is a big piece. What you think, Vivian? I agree. I think visibility is key, right? And visibility and know-how. You know, I I don't Mm -hmm. think uh, at that point in my career, I didn't know how to really vouch for myself the way that I should have. You know, Mm -hmm. that that wasn't something that was uh, put in front of me. It was like, this is what you get and you take it, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and I think we have a very vocal um, WNBA players uh, association president in NECA, and she's really working hard to make sure that those ladies are getting what they want. But uh, you know, that's that's something that's newer. And I think that that needs to continue to grow. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the more visible the issues are, the better. Like people are blown away when they find out that uh, WNBA teams weren't providing daycare for mothers. But you go to an NBA game and it's so yeah. cute to see the dad playing with the babies and then they right. you know get escorted off to the side to go sit in the back. And it's like, oh, look at the dad being a dad. But if it was a mom and be like, wow, they couldn't get their kid in daycare or something. It's like, no, yeah. it should be provided because this is my job and I have to, you yeah. know. But when people yeah. realize like they're missing things like that, they don't have anybody who's working with them for mental health. Uh, they don't have a ton of stuff. I mean, back to back to back games and they're flying on commercial flights. They're missing flights, getting to the game, to the arena hours before games. Like these are all issues yeah. that exist for these athletes and it's terrible. And people don't know that they exist. Yeah. And it's like, I feel like the more people get behind them, 
and realize and are able to humanize them as more than just mm -hmm. athletes because i think that's an right. issue in general but like mm -hmm. wow these are humans that are having like to to play through really hard things there then then it really becomes like okay how can we also step up and fight for them yeah, yeah. yeah. you know i think that's a um I'm sorry. I know you, you're you're trying to close us out, huh? But I just I, I feel like I <laughs> what I'm hearing and what's occurring to me now is, you know, when we're having these conversations about how we uh, support these players, what we're not talking about is um, the dignity and labor, and that mm -hmm. um, athletes are also workers, right? And that the the product that you are working to produce is making someone else a lot of money. And how do we get back to like lifting up the fact that this is this is about um, equal pay for equal work. It's about the dignity for all labor. It's about respecting you all as workers um, who are helping to build a franchise and make money for someone else and that you deserve a share in that prosperity. So what Shawnee didn't tell you all is she's also the chair of our women's committee. So Shawnee, we should uh, huddle after this call and talk about next steps. Shawnee, Shawnee for president. <laughs> I'm saying. Hey, I'm saying. But real talk, though, real talk, um, and maybe this is just because I know a few of them um, from basketball, but the Storm owners are awesome people. They're great advocates for women. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there's this three-on-three -three stuff going on for the world, and they're the mm -hmm. first ownership company to, to, to pay a three-on-three -three team of women. Mm -hmm. Um, so, mm -hmm. you know, those are, I think, people that you can bring in with you. I mean, I think the reason that players like Sue and Alicia and all these players want to stay here is because they really fight for them and they want to make things good for them. So I think, you know, pull pull people like that in right. and, and it's a win. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they got a great organization. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. They, absolutely. They, they put in the work. They put in the work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's funny, mm -hmm. Sean. You, you answered. You asked my last question too about um. There were more com commonalities, you know, oh. between the the NBA, the WNBA world and the labor world. I think alike, Daniel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was, and I was, I was going to ask you like, how can we continue to keep these conversations going outside, outside of this virtual thing that we got going on right now? So that's that was my question. But you, you beat me to it. You know. What I'm saying? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah, I want to. I, I do want to thank y'all for coming on, man. From um, it's really been an amazing show. You know, ninety minutes of great of, of great conversation is, is is needed during these times too. So I really appreciate it. So mm -hmm. start with Shawnee and to Vivian, to Shamiqua, to April. Just give out your social media handles, how people could um you know contact y'all as well. Yeah. So on Facebook, Shawnee Wheeler James. On Instagram and Twitter, it's Lobbylicious. Um, so follow me. <laughs> Lobbylicious. <laughs> <laughs> Lobbying with the style, yeah. Yep, okay. All right. Um, Vivian Fryson on Facebook. There's two of them on there. They're both mine. I only use one right now. So go ahead and add them both. I'll add you on the right one. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. Also don't use that very much. Um, or you can find me on Instagram, VZWho. Um, you know, I grew up loving Wheezy, VZ, Stuck. So VZWho, gotcha. yeah. Anyways, that's where you can find me at. <laughs> Oh, okay. And uh, Shamiqua here. You can find me on um, Instagram and Twitter. And my handle is C-H-O-L-D in the number one. Yep. Yeah. So um, I'm inconsistent on Twitter and uh, LinkedIn. But you can find me on LinkedIn under April Sims and uh, Twitter under April R underscore Sims. Um, probably most consistent on IG, April Sims underscore 
and Facebook, April Sims. Yeah, yeah, I like that. I'm inconsistent too, but I like IG though. It seems to be the easiest these days. I had to get rid of Facebook, y'all. It was ooh, Facebook makes you stress. Yeah, yeah a little bit, Listen, a little bit. Too many damn opinions. Oh wait, oh, is anybody God. on your? Who got a TikTok? That's what I want to know. Oh no, I'm, 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 I'm scared to download TikTok. Roland Martin uh, and a bunch of people were saying they're like stealing information. I was nervous. <laughs> yeah, I heard about that too. I did. Uh, our information's already been stolen. Right. They, <laughs> look, I work at Amazon. If my information ain't been stolen, it's about to be. So. <laughs> Say that. Say that. Yeah. No, Daniel, this has been uh, this has been this has been dope. I was nervous at first. I wasn't sure about the format. Um, and you know, you got some big players. Um, literally, some big players, right? Um, some real important, you like doing important stuff. So um, yeah. it's been a real cool. treat to spend the afternoon with y'all. Thank you. No, oh, no definitely. Same here. Thank, thank y'all for coming on. For Shawnee, Vivian, for Shamiqua, for April, I'm Daniel Artes, and this is Daniel Artes Podcast, live stream edition, Technical Talk Tuesday, sponsored by Access. And with that being said, I'm out of here. Thank you for coming on. Love is love. All right. Bye bye. See y'all in T-Town. Thank you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Y'all have a good day. Thanks. All right.